Welcome to the Marshall Pro Podcast and your week in IndyCar listener Q&A show being recorded here Sunday early afternoon after the completion of the Rolex 24 at Daytona. Among the winners there are five-time IndyCar champion Scott Dixon just took his third overall victory at Daytona. Fourth win altogether there. He has a class victory as well, I believe. <sighs> Apologies. Recording this many days later than expected. Just say that it's been a rather busy week while I've been unable to travel to Daytona to do my normal coverage. Uh, I did actually look and count and, yeah, have knocked out more than 20 uh, stories, features, and other pieces of content during the week. So been rather busy doing all that. It's been a pretty busy week for my wife and I, but a good one as well. So I had a bit of a fun thing happen here too, where a couple days ago, a good old podcast here surpassed 4 million downloads since we launched it, which a bit of a drop in the bucket compared to bigger, better, and more podcasty podcasts but at least for what we do here i'd say four million is a pretty cool number had the highest single day of traffic ever and also the most downloaded or listened to podcast ever all thanks to a sports car in car audio feature that went up the beginning of the week it's been a hectic one and normally i try and consume a beer during our listener q a shows here This is going to be a week where I am staring at a large mug at, what time is it? It's 12.16 in the afternoon on a Sunday, and it's got coffee in it because I need it. And if you hear snoring during the episode, well, you know, it's just me kind of conking out. Going to keep the intro short this week. Going to do our usual fare, important fare of saying thank you to Cooper Tires for supporting us now for three years to the Justice Brothers, who are back for their second year. Pretty amazing folks with their line of automotive chemicals and lubricants that I have genuinely used since I was 16 years old. And then also, TorontoMotorsports.com. The the silly, silly Canadian partners of ours who do our t-shirts and stickers and Lord knows what all else. Plus a bunch of other great racing memorabilia slanted fairly heavily towards IndyCar. And then also Bell Racing Helmets USA. Thanks to all them. I love doing this each week and I love doing the podcasts knowing that they're here with us, making it possible. And thank you to you all as well. Bunch of great questions this week. We had the mayor of Hinchtown, who was our IndyCar guest episode performer. And it was pretty cool, too, because Hinch has intentionally stayed under the radar, done no media, done nothing since things went sideways with spam. And he said, yeah, let's talk. Let's do this and trusted us. So that means a lot. Uh, It's nice that he wanted to do this on my little podcast. But I guess the, the key thing to know is he trusts and trusted you all that he wouldn't be hammered over the head with all kinds of things that he probably didn't want to answer. So did as many uh, things as we could to answer things with his episode, and I'm confident we will be doing more together here in the very near future. 
with the mayor of Hinchtown. Let's do the final bit of business, the good bit of business, and that is courtesy of TorontoMotorsports.com, which gives away something. I don't know what. Pretty much down to you all. I don't get involved in it. Uh, could be a Marshall Pruitt podcast, weekend IndyCar t-shirt, weekend sports cars, could be a variety of things. Do a really basic item here, this show, and our guest show. It's all driven by listener Q&A, those items that you submit each week when I put out a call for them on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast Facebook page, which I would urge you to join. Also do that on my at Marshall Pruitt Twitter handle. Say, hey, it's time for questions. Send them in. And then our pals at the Reddit IndyCar group gather up questions from their active collective and send those in. So through those three methods of weekly question submissions, we go back and look, find the one on the Facebook page, because it's frankly the easiest way I can look at likes and all that kind of stuff and give away something between this week, Chuck Knob, who says, for last week's guest, Mike Hall, can you take one race car up the hill at Goodwood? And if you were, what would be your number one choice and why? So Chuck's question for Mike got a whole heck of a bunch. Uh, I think 24 thumbs up and hearts and all kinds of things. So your question that you submitted got the most reaction, the most positive traction, Chuck. So send me a direct message through one of those social media platforms I just mentioned. Get me your email address, and I will connect you in torontomotorsports.com to figure out what gift you want from them for having the most liked and most loved question of the week. And so if you want to be in the running for that in the future, hit our Marshall Pruitt Podcast Facebook page or my at Marshall Pruitt Twitter handle. Or join the Reddit IndyCar community and do it there. Uh, but as for the running for getting the free stuff, we look at Facebook and base the likes off of that on how we hand things out. But now you know the secret of how to submit questions uh, for the show. And I will also throw in a quick thank you to everyone who does not do those things and sends them to me to my email address or direct message through, well, I think I had one this week on Instagram, and I do my really super best to say I would love to spend time going through all the various forms of social media and email that I have to collect everything that comes in and dump it into a document. I don't have that time, unfortunately. So that's why we try and make things pretty simple with Facebook, Twitter, or the Reddit IndyCar group. And that's it. So, Chuck, send me that direct message. Get you going with some goodies here. And speaking of goodies, we're going to get rolling right now with your Q&A. Starting off with Jim Fling, who says, So, if Hinch is racing in 2020 on a limited schedule, is he still under contract to Aero SP and still entitled to 2020 remuneration? Has Hinch given all that up in order to race a limited IndyCar schedule. Well, that's one of the questions he wasn't interested in answering, Jim. And I'm going to say this just as a person, not as a guy that knows Hinch. Um, it's a bit of a weird thing, right? 
uh, and I just share this in a global sense, how often do you, how often do I speak about who pays us, how we get paid, what we get paid, and the terms of that payment in our lives? I just, I don't think that happens that often, which always makes it a bit odd for me when we have something like this. And there's nothing to do with you, Jim, but just, hey, Hinch, so you're an athlete and you're somewhat well-known in your sport. So tell us how you get paid and why and when and what. And it just, person to person, it's a really strange thing. Uh, It's such a private thing that to ask that question is, Uh, It's an interesting one. So on this exact topic, Jim, I would be very surprised to learn that Hinch is under contract to Arrow McLaren SP, also known as hashtag spam. Let me put myself in a Hinch-like position and give you an answer and everyone an answer of what I think would be the most logical way things have been handled. Knowing that James has a sponsor in Genesis to go do the Indy 500, and he will be doing that with a Honda-powered team, meaning it won't be with Spam since they have moved to Chevy. My guess, as I wrote about in something, I don't know, a couple months ago, about drivers getting boned and how they more or less have limited options to pursue legal manners to get the money, get the thing that they have been wronged over because they just don't have the savings to win a protracted, prolonged, pro-something legal battle. Uh, What normally happens in those situations, Jim, in this Hinch-like situation too, Positive words are said. Nothing negative is said. One side or both sides say what we heard from the two of them. Still part of the team, et cetera, et cetera. All good, love and respect. Just not going to drive for us. On the other side, thank you for the opportunity, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Still have a desire to do my job in a car, uh, not watching other people in cars. So, Thank you, and uh, I won't be defeated. Messaging was exactly on point from both parties. Pretty much standard stuff. You could have written it yourself, and it would have been more or less the same. So that's how these things go. And the reason those things get done is so that both sides can maintain face. So I would say what happened here, Jim, is... Hinch had two options. If nothing came along, he could have indeed sat on the sidelines and just been that very unhappy person getting paid. What I would suggest is the strongest possibility is that both sides came to some form of buyout. And in that buyout, nothing negative is going to be allowed to be said. Uh, That's often in the form of a new contract, a new agreement. So not just the here's a buyout, sign the paper, you're done. Effectively, divorce papers with a payout. 
in that document, there's pretty much always something that says, and you will not say a word negatively against us. And then the driver usually pushes back and says, yeah, I see that line, but there's no end date. And if you think I'm going to be silent for the rest of my life, you're out of your damn mind. But okay, one year, two year, three, something. But at some point in time, uh, maybe after all this is all forgotten, I'm going to speak my piece. That's also something I've heard has been inserted. So would say this, Jim, and to those who are wondering, and for Hinch, who was never going to speak about this, my guess is there is no business relationship between both sides right now in that it has been concluded contractually and financially and silence, which is a pretty big part of these things. One of the reasons you don't hear Sebastian Bourdais talking about Dale Coyne at all in any kind of negative way is in order to get paid what you owed. Got to zip your lips, man. So as for giving everything up that he had with Arrow McLaren SP to have a limited IndyCar schedule, keep in mind the only thing he had was the promise of some money. And so rather than keep this pretty ugly, wait a minute, aren't you divorced, but you're still living in the house kind of thing, I would say there's also a willingness here to just let's move on. What's it going to take for us to move on? So uh, would not get hung up on whatever was said by the team on he's still apart and still going to get paid. Uh, Everything that I know is they wound up that relationship and they are moving on. Let's go to level one. He says, where will Hinch land for the month of May and a couple of other races? And aside from the month of May in Toronto, anywhere else he might hope to run? Well, in his visit, he did say Toronto isn't looking very strong right now. It might just be the Indianapolis 500, not the Indy GP and Indy 500, but just the 500. As for where he might land... I don't know of any odd options that haven't been explored. We know it's Chevy. (laughs) Sorry. Look. All right. I'm drunk on coffee. That's why I'm misspeaking here. Uh, Let's say we know that he's going to be in a Honda because he told us he's going to be in a Honda. But as for which team, we know that from our guest two weeks ago, managing director of Chip Ganassi Racing, Mike Hull, he said, yeah, we're going to be three cars for the 500. We're not going to be running a fourth. So unless something drastic changes, uh, we have to stand on what Mike told us. So that means Ganassi Honda is not an option. We know that the Andretti Autosport team is full, although they haven't announced it. We do expect to hear good old fast effing Fernando will be with them for the month of May. If you look down through the rest of the Honda options, there's not a lot. There really is not. If you look through the rest of the Honda options, you got Dale Coyne, Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan, Racing. As I know it, Hinch has two options in the Honda world. Where do I think he will end up? It's a good question, and that's why I'm glad that uh, we're getting these up front here. So... Here's a little bit of background that some of you may know about, some of you may not. 
when you see indie only drivers tend to have one of two scenarios you have a team that has a sponsor or a tradition of running an extra car and they want to go out and hire the best they can to improve their odds of winning the vast majority of the remaining one-off Indy 500 drivers happen to be those who bring a budget. Uh, Those who either have their own money, family money, or have found a sponsor to take somewhere. This situation is one that is, I think, rather interesting in that Hinch obviously is a business person. Hinch has some great relationships. Hinch is looking to explore as many sponsorship opportunities as he can. This is also the way that he makes a living. So we're talking about how much money has he found from Genesis, Petro Lubricants Canada, Honda Canada, and a few others. Would he, knowing that he is now no longer, quote, employed, forget however much he got in the buyout, from spam uh, in terms of actual regular money coming in uh, he's no longer in that situation so you would think that he's in a scenario where saving money or protecting money from an income standpoint would really be his mindset if he has found whatever amount of money let's say $750,000 to bring for a Indy 500 program or to have in hand for an Indy 500 program, what would make the most sense? And this isn't, there's no answer to that because it's a very individualistic take on things. But what would be the smartest thing to do if you are, quote, unemployed, if you are your own boss? The money you have found is the money you have to control to then acquire an Indy 500 seat, would you go to a team that would give you a very good chance of being successful but would want all the money? Or, knowing that this is probably going to be the bulk of your income, the, call it, percentage of that budget you can hold on to, would you look for a team that was almost as competitive, really, really close, but charges 10 15 20 percent less if i was in this scenario i'm now a a one person business where the money i have found from sponsors is how i will pay my bills i gotta admit i wouldn't be the one handing over the entire wad of cash to a team i would absolutely look for the best i could find that also left me enough to know that I'm going to be in good shape for the rest of the year, maybe two years. Again, there's no guarantee of anything that might happen in 2021. So this is where this gets interesting. So you see some drivers and you go, wow, that driver is always finding money, but they're never with a big team. Well, it's one of two things. Either they haven't found a ton of money, therefore they can't get into a big team, or they've found decent money, but they go with one of the smaller to mid-pack teams knowing that 
You're going to have a good month of May. Never going to win, but your take-home percentage is going to be higher. So what would I do if I were James having to choose between Coin and Ray Hall? I would be getting lawyers on a plane or in a car or whatever to Illinois to get a deal done with Dale Coin. That team has been very good at the 500 for a while. Realize that they've just had a pretty big engineering shakeup. But I would be on the phone to Dale. I would be trying to conclude that deal in that there's no disrespect to the Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan team. Uh, we just know that RLL, in terms of price, is a premium entrant. And so if James does indeed end up signing with RLL, you can safely assume he has chosen to put the majority of the budget that he has found into that Indy 500 ride, knowing that that should help move him up a couple spots on the grid and potentially do that on race day. But again, we've seen the coin cars be really fast, so I think that's why it might be easier to head in that direction for the month of May. But really, it sounds like there's only two options right now. Go to Joseki 100 says, McLaren confirmed Fernando Alonso is no longer their, quote, brand ambassador. At this point, how much longer do we have to wait before the deal with Andretti is announced? Seems more a question of when, not if. Everything that I've heard, Joseki is basically just waiting to get the uh, Dakar event done. And with that completed, and I don't think they wanted to announce it in the days, that short window leading up to the Rolex 24th Daytona, I'd have to think we are on the clock for that announcement. So could be wrong. Have heard it was meant to come and follow, though, right after. So if that's the case, I would say we should be uh, hearing about this ASAP. Let's go to Pamela Henderson. Alonzo's made comments about maybe running a full season of IndyCar. I'm very skeptical. Do you think there's anything to it? I do not. I do not think that there is anything to it. I think that Fernando speaks in a lot of generalisms. It's pretty amazing. Like I lo- Wouldn't you love to do that? Where you have been so successful and you have earned so much money and kept so much of that money where you can pretty much say, yeah, sounds good to me. Yeah, I want to do that. Yeah, I might like to try it. Yeah, that'd be cool. And you don't have to do anything. Life is just whatever you want it to be every single day. That's amazing. <laughs> so I'd put the Fernando full season thing in that same kind of category. Love to think about it. Can't see any way that it happens. I do not believe Fernando has the motivation, true motivation. He's got words to say it, but actual fire in his belly to contest a full season of IndyCar, to do all the press, all the travel move here, I would assume. Again, I know he can afford to teleport back and forth to wherever he wants to live on the globe, but... Do I really foresee Fernando Alonso at 40-whatever deciding that he is going to grind, just grind 
like all the other IndyCar drivers do. I don't. I just don't. I'd love to see it. I mark the mark me mark this day where I just truly want to be proven wrong. I just can't see it. It doesn't seem to fit where he's at right now. He's at the bucket list. Ooh, I want to go to the moon and I want to buy a submarine and so on and so on. You go, dude, I would, I'm so jealous. Getting onto the same routine as Charlie Kimball of <laughs> rise and grind at the gym and meeting with the engineers about that and getting the seat fit and then doing this and talking about 14 different strategies you might employ. I just don't. Uh, we're going to go to Paul Trahan. says, MP, how is the hiring process going for the podcast? Hashtag me personally. I think you should hire me. Well, Thank you, Paul. And thank you to the dozens, <laughs> the dozens of you who responded when I said, hey, I'm going to, I need some help getting the weekly Q&A stuff together. I, well, get, I don't know. I'm just constantly not thinking good enough in the brain because I'm thinking I'm going to get three or four people who are pretty awesome. And it ended up being, yeah, way more. So thank you. I just went with the only thing that I could make sense of the first person who responded. Uh, and so that was Tim Falkowitz. And so our pal, Tim, who hopefully is listening, has done a fine job in putting together the guest and the listener Q and a list as Rocky jumps up in front of me. He was such a pain in the ass this morning. Um, thanks Paul. Yeah. I mean, it's up to Tim, right? You know, if he goes on a bender, uh, we, we see photos of him on TMZ in the, uh, in the old police lockup. Uh, that position might be open here soon. Uh, let's go to Nick Dovniak. Says, MP, as I watch the Green Bay Packers getting hammered, I started wondering, any chance we see Danica in sports cars? <laughs> Jesus, Nick. <laughs> ah, that is weird, isn't it? The Aaron Rodgers... Danica Patrick thing. Um, they just seem like such different people, but maybe they aren't. Uh, I don't know. It's weird though, right? Um, huh. Uh, Danica is such a, a fascinating character. At least the Danica that everybody knew before she became, really became a household one name person. Everyone seemed to think highly of her, like her very personable and engaging and the crush of popularity and attention and demands on her time and everything else, uh, just really seemed to have radically altered her life, who she was, who she is, what she lets through her views, etc. Um, no, I mentioned this a year or two ago in the podcast. I hadn't seen her since what, whatever her last race was in 2011 IndyCar race. And I'm not pretending like, I mean, she, she might recognize me in a crowd. If we were standing alone in an elevator, I think she would say hello and maybe remember my name. Maybe. Uh, so, you know. 
that's just worth saying up front. Um, it was just really interesting to see this person in her last moments of IndyCarness and being the most popular driver around uh, and getting mobbed for attention to then see that same person who's already at this pretty insane level go to NASCAR for whatever it was, six, seven, eight years and come back to IndyCar. And I just didn't recognize her. And so that's not a negative statement against her. That's a, I can only imagine how much worse it was being the, one of the two or three most popular drivers there and truly a household name as a result of being a NASCAR. So this is where, I don't know, maybe the having a a partner in Rogers, who's, you know, similar, super high level recognized athlete and whatnot. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe their shared experiences have helped them find a more normal bond than, you know, uh, I guess her last partner was a NASCAR driver. And then before that, what? Anyways, I don't want to turn the show into someone's, uh, any driver's history of love and dating and relationships, but maybe Aaron and Danica have a pretty cool thing. And it's because they've actually been through that same ringer and can be normal people to one another. Well, that they haven't been, can't be something in public, or I don't know. It's weird, though. It it is just a bit strange. I I would have never really put those two together. Uh, Matt Record, Matt, who puts together our weekly Reddit questions, says, there's been a, there has understandably been a lot of talk about Hinch's ride search, but is there anywhere for Spencer Piggott to land? Says, has he been mentioned at all, even just for May? Uh, he said, Imps is starting next week, and he's not there either. Matt says, I thought he started to show good speed last season, but lacked consistency. So it would be a disappointment if he's finished now. Reached out to Spencer a couple weeks ago, Matt, maybe, just a general, hey, got anything going on? And he said, no. You know, I'm talking with a couple people here or there, about the 500 maybe. But, yeah, to your point, it, it feels like Spencer needed one more year in IndyCar to give us a definitive answer. Is this guy real true talent that is going to break through and show us something that makes us believe beyond knowing he's a very good IndyCar driver world has an overabundance of very good IndyCar drivers. Doesn't have as many greats. The greats are the ones that get paid. The greats are the ones that get chased to get their signature on contracts. Spence seemed like he needed the 2020 season to really find out for himself and to tell us what he was more than a really solid prospect who could show flashes of quality performances. Need to be honest. Wasn't driving for a Ganassi and Dreddy Penske. And beyond those three, we know that the fall off is pretty steep. Ray Holleterm and Lanigan's in there, certainly too. Not always consistently, but Takuma Sato has been doing some winning. 
that's a really good thing. But you know, with a midfield team, so we have to maybe couch his results a little bit. But it really did feel like oh, this split with Ed Carpenter Racing came at precisely the wrong time, which is obviously what you picked up on here, Matt, and are mentioning. He needed 2020, and obviously to show in that season that, okay, there is all the talent we've seen that have led that's led him to win every level of the road to Indy. This is real. This kid's going to be a, a beast who's going to take over for one of the other drivers when they retire here sometime in the next couple of years. And so because we don't have that, I think that's why Spencer has not been someone bigger teams have been pursuing or courting. So if we do see him at the 500 and something, it's probably going to be a Honkos team, probably going to be something, a smaller team. On the IMSA side, a bit of a problem there in that their off-season is very short. It's two and a half months, which means that deals get done almost the moment the season ends and knowing that most teams were already full with the drivers on the paying side, he's just stuck in that place where if he wants his career to continue, he's going to have to find money and bring money. And how do you do that? If it's not family money, you have to have something to market. And a couple, a podium here or there, and a couple of things in a somewhat brief period in IndyCar just puts him in a really horrible position so i love the kid i want to see him in indycar i believe he can be a beast i just fear that we might not get a chance to see that play out for him uh let's see sean lee similar in a conversation recently a fellow race fan and i surmised there's no more than half a dozen drivers in indycar there on merit alone would you agree wonder if your list is it all the same as mine? Uh, well, seeing as how a half dozen is six, and they would be there on merit alone, I would say, Sean, that our lists would be very different, and I do not agree. So I'm just going to pull up the 2019... Uh, what am I going to do? I'm going to pull up the 2019 driver standings, and let's go through and... I'll let you count because me not count as good as me should. So, merit alone. Joseph Newgarden, Simon Pagano, Alexander Rossi, Scott Dixon, Will Power, Felix Rosenquist, Colton Herta, Ryan Hunter Ray, Takuma Sato, Graham Rahal. Won't be there for next year full time. Sebastian Bourdais, James Hinchcliffe, Santino Ferrucci showed us that he deserves to be there on merit. Tony Kanon. It's been a, what, except for some time here with Foyt, which has been pretty brutal. We know that if we go to his last season with Chip Ganassi Racing, he was, what, I think 7th or 8th in the standings. So, you know, if we're talking merit... Uh, that seems meritorious to me. Um, what are we up to there? Uh, 14, 15 drivers based on merit alone. 
Um, also, my interweb connection here just got a little bit slow. Let me go back and look. Uh, where was he in that final year with Ganassi? All right, it was 10th. I apologize. So it wasn't as good as I thought. But in his four years there, finished 7th, 8th, 7th, and 10th. So, again, talk merit. Uh, someone who finishes in the top half of the IndyCar championship, I would say there's certainly merit to say they should be in a seat to continue doing that. Um, I mean, really, who are the ones, if we're talking full-time, where there's a question mark, right? Mateus Laced, he's not in the series anymore. We only had him for two years. He was in the worst team in the series, and we didn't get to see much out of him because he's a rookie in the team was not performing so merit i mean question there <clears throat> zach veach right had a good rookie season really terrible sophomore season merit you know uh, would say he certainly showed us he belonged there after his first season marcus erickson again merit it's certainly proven he is a highly skilled race car driver um marco andretti you know i mean there's a couple i would say where if you wanted to question whether they deserve to be in the series on merit alone i don't think you get a lot lot of arguments from people sean but i'd say your list is maybe inverted Uh, you might find three or four maybe five where if you want to really be hardcore and try and pick every aspect of quote merit I'm sure you could find a half dozen that you would say do not. Would not say you would only find a half dozen that do. Uh, Pat O'Day. Hey, Pat. Marshall IndyCar's metric or standard size nuts and bolts. Says Europe designed, but U.S. raced, meaning the Dallara chassis uh, based out of Italy. Or as we say in our household, Italy. Uh, Pat also says, how about pit equipment? I imagine teams are not traveling with two sets of tools. This is a great question, Pat. Thank you for sending it. Um, I had to ask because it's been a really long time since I have worked on IndyCars. And so reached out to a championship winning crew chief friend of mine who says, despite the Delara being a European product, standard, nuts and bolts, not metric is what they use. I would bet, though, that you're going to find at least one uh, number 10 wrench and socket in everyone's toolboxes because that's, I believe, the most universal tool size. Uh, Let's see, Dan Tenoff, who's just become our weekly man of mirth, says, Marshall, let's say Driven the Musical is a Broadway success. Selling out its multi-week run, with its hit, I Am Mindy, by David Cook, reaching the music charts. The producers want to keep the money train rolling in and decide to take the show on the road to the masses. But to go even bigger, they want to revive the lost spectacle of the ice capades. Driven on ice! <laughs> Is coming to an arena near you. Which would you rather see? Cart liveried Zamboni machines or Lola's and Renard's running across the ice? on studded tires. Uh, Dan closes with saying, hashtag me personally. I'd want to see Joe Tonto exhibit his godly car control 
by drifting his car to take slap shots on a hockey net. These are my listeners, man. Uh, Dan, you're the best. Do this. Send me a direct message as well, because I'm going to send you a T-shirt myself. Um, you're the best. And I'm serious. Send me, just send me a DM. We got to get you something. Ah, this, is, this is one of my favorite parts of the show is just the silly stuff that comes in. You get me. You understand my mind and sense of humor. And this is a place for those who don't know that my brain kind of gravitates in more often than not. I'm really fortunate, I believe, to see life and live life with a bit of a, a curious, questioning, sarcastic eye looking for something funny or snarky or whatever. So it's questions like these that just make my day. Uh, really simple. Lola's and Renard's across the ice on studded tires. And the Joe Tonto rear tire slap shot. I mean, this is just going to go into the movie, right? Uh, because this has to become part of it. Maybe that's where Driven 2 opens. Down and out Joe Tonto having to make money as a driven on ice, ice capades driver in his... Well, it wouldn't actually be a Lola or Renard. It would be those really scary, cheap, tube frame knockoff film set indie cars used and driven a couple of those which would be found old and rusty out behind some barn uh, that get revived and resuscitated with their little lawnmower engines or whatever they had in them uh, it would be him in one of those so it wouldn't even be a real indie car dan it'd just be uh this old facsimile but a rusty one where they because the budget would be so low they wouldn't even have the cash to have these things torn down and sandblasted and rebuilt and used. So every time he gets in and out of the car, it's just rust all over his suit. They got to wash it. It's just, yeah. But it'd be him doing those slap shots in the old fake indie cars. Oh, this is just the best. So send me, for real, send me a DM. Damn, we got to get you a Joe Tonto a quarter retrieval service t-shirt at minimum. Here we go to uh, John Walnar here. It says, two questions for you, Marshall. Should have asked this last week. But do you think Scott McLaughlin's test is a response to Andretti Autosport potentially running seven cars at Indy? Seems almost like Rogers, quote, loading for bear by potentially bringing in another championship-level driver. I don't think this has anything to do with Andretti, John. I think this has to do with realizing Simon Pagano, which I've been mentioning and my colleague Robin Miller has been mentioning for a while now, he is certainly someone whose value has gone up massively since winning the Indy 500. Uh, also would say that with his contract, which we believe is going to be up for renewal at the end of 2020, that uh, obviously hope everything goes awesomely at Spam this year with Pato and Oliver Askew would also hope that everything that we've been hearing about there being a desired reunion between young Mr. Pagano, who got his IndyCar start with Sam Schmidt uh, and this spam team would just say that that could be a very real thing to consider for 2021 would hope that would be in a third car. If it does happen compared to Pato or Oliver 
being out of a seat in general would just say that uh, I think Roger is looking at he has at least one driver in Pagano who's going to be, what, 37 here sometime soon? 36, 37. Not the youngest, but certainly is also getting a lot of interest. Has Will Power, who is, what, 38, 39? Um, and, you know, we're still, we're hoping, we're absolutely hoping DJ Willie P gets back to his title-winning ways been a little while since it felt like uh, our boy Mr. DJ Willie P was truly on track to fight it down to the wire to be in the championship frame. So my best guess would be that Roger and Tim Sendrick using this test just to get a feel. Where do you think he's at? Does he sink or swim? And he swam. And there's still, you'd need, you know, you'd need a ton of time to develop, but I think they realize above and beyond probably any of the any of the immediate options that might be in front of them that McLaughlin could be the one they could convert the fastest to IndyCar. Ricky Taylor, who I've been championing for years, one of Rogers Accurate Team Penske IMSA DPI drivers I mean, there's every reason he should be in an in an IndyCar today. I think, though, that might be a little bit complicated uh, because as I hear more and more, Honda just has fallen in love with the kid. Uh, at least when I talk to my friends at, <laughs> at HPD, uh, and even when I talk to Ricky, you know, he just talks about how, man, this is awesome. I mean, there's just love, lots of love. So, depending on whether he is a Penske employee or a Honda employee and availability and whatnot going forward, whether Ricky would be tied to the IMSA program for years to come and that's all he, you know, really would be used for, would say you got a lot of questions there. Of all the drivers that Roger employs, or that Roger uses, I should say, who aren't an IndyCar, that could replace one of his IndyCar drivers if they retire, go to another team, etc. Ricky is number one, period, end of statement. Dane Cameron, I would put there right alongside him. Uh, Maybe number two-ish, I don't know, but there just seems to be something about Ricky that might be a perfect fit. Dane, who was phenomenal in junior open wheel, I have no doubt he'd be a monster as well. I just haven't heard the same level of interest from him in wanting to get a shot in IndyCar. So McLaughlin would be third, but I don't think that if I'm just talking who I think would be turnkey right away to try and move in this direction. I just don't quite know if the Ricky and Dane options are even possible, which is why I think Roger might be taking a harder look at Scott right now. Uh, what else? Your second question. Also on the subject of Andretti Super Team, do you think it's maybe time to install limits for teams, for car counts? It says, uh, what do you think the optics are when 25% of your field is owned or affiliated with one team? Uh, as always, thanks again for your coverage and big thanks and big prayers to both you and your wife in this difficult time. It's very kind of you, John. 
Um, why? I guess is what comes to mind. If a team is having success commercially and they have businesses that want to spend money with them or drivers who have found sponsorship that want to spend money with them, I, why would we want to put a limit on that? That That's maybe the part I don't get. Uh, over concern for, quote, optics? Um, I don't know, man. Maybe I just default to a really basic mindset, but uh, this is America. I mean, right? Land of opportunity. If Andretti Autosport is finding lots of opportunity, uh, it doesn't stand out to me as super American to try and limit that, hinder that, slow it down, uh, complicate that. I would say that the only concern I would level is along the lines of, quote, too big to fail, right? If one team has too big of a percentage of the field and their collapse could collapse the series, then, yeah, that would be an area where I would think the series would want to insert themselves a little bit and say, hey, for our sake and our safety, can you walk us through some of your contract lengths, some of the fail-safes and guarantees you have? It's not our business for you to tell us how you're getting paid by who and when and how much, but just if you guys hit a rocky patch, we don't want to be in a position where our series crumbles. That, I would say, could be a question posed to a team if they have a really high number of entries. But beyond that, uh, right now, IndyCar is not suffering from too many entries. So if we have a situation where one team is able to increase the numbers, increase revenue, bring more money into the paddock, uh, I can't think of any ways, John, that that would warrant intrusion uh let's see jerry p2000 from reddit says should penske move his team to f1 now that he owns indycar no uh sad boys to men that's a great screen name besides penske's new involvement what do you think is the most interesting storyline going into i believe the new season was meant although that text was clipped from the question unfortunately uh interesting storyline my brain pushes me towards youth versus age and experience we have mr or mrs sad boys to men which again i love that screen name we have this pretty cool dynamic that has really come on hardcore uh, with a bunch of stupidly talented youths, tons of youth coming into the series in the last year or two. I'm really excited to see where the series goes as a result. So if you take Colton Herta, I think is kind of the leading light there. Pato Award, Oliver Askew. So we have the 2018 Indy Lights runner-up in Colton Herta. We have the 2018 Indy Lights champion in Pato Award, the 2019 Indy Lights champion in Oliver Askew. Uh, I realize he's not young, young, but at least he's newish. Marcus Erickson in his second year, 
in the series, this time with Chip Ganassi, right? So no excuses, no questions. As I sip a bit of coffee here, we have Santino Ferrucci, who uh, actually I'm going to hold Santino for just a sec. We also have at Ganassi, we have Felix Rosenquist. That kid's just insane. Um, Going to come back to a coin in just a moment. I know he's not new, but he is still young-ish, and that's Connor Daly, thankfully, is back, not for the full time, but uh, there's still that good kind of emerging, rising feel, I would say, with Connor to embrace. We have Renus VK, runner-up in Indy Lights to Oliver Askew, who I think, for the umpteenth time, I'll say, I think is going to shock people this year. And that's a lot <laughs> of young drivers making their name, making their way, challenging the establishment. That's pretty darn cool. And then we go to Dale Coin Racing. So yes, I know that my hamburger, my hamburger, my French fry, your French fry, Sebastian Bourdais, we know that was just a shitty thing that happened. It's happened. It's done. It's behind us. We know what is left in its wake is Santino Ferrucci, who, what, a year and a half ago, um, was the most hated driver in all of motor racing, is now kind of, sort of, not as much hated and is leading an IndyCar team. That's an amazing arc. I'm going to throw in here a couple things that I don't want to spoil the potentially spoil the party too much, but uh, Santino being moved into Sebastian's seat, wearing the same fire suit and sponsorship potentially, and essentially him being Sebastian 2.0 at coin team leader now, right? At 22 or however old he is. Um, to Alex Palou, a kid who I would think might be the most anonymous to IndyCar fans among new drivers coming into the series in a while. Right? Just zero profile here. This kid's been pretty darn good in all that he has done in Europe and Japan. Am I saying, oh my God, you know, boy, Formula One lost here. They have this, this guy was going to be the next Lewis Hamilton. No, I wouldn't go that far. No, I wouldn't. But this is a kid who is intriguing to me, uh, who finished third in the Japanese Super Formula Championship, which is a pretty hard fought thing. Uh, Won a race. Rookie of the Year, etc. His other Junior Open Wheel results, probably nothing to have you say. Future IndyCar champion, Indy 500 winner. What I find that I like, hi Rocky, go to hell. Tired of you bugging me today. Sorry, you've been a bad boy. Um, I'm intrigued. Because I think the the easy way to look at this upcoming season is, oh, well, Santino really impressed people last year. I don't know what the percentage was, but it seemed like at half the races, he 
had the uh, upper hand on Seb. Um, now he's the team leader. He's adapted to ovals very quickly. This guy's really in a in a position to take off, and he's going to have this kind of weird Spanish rookie we've never heard of and probably have minimal expectations for. So Palou needs to learn ovals, just as Santino did. Get that. I think that's going to be, you know, his obvious weakness. I'm really intrigued to see if the dynamic of, oh, even though he's super young, Santino's a team leader, and he's going to be, you know, not just team leader, but leading his teammate around everywhere. I'm going to be very interested to see if that does indeed end up being reality. Because I think this Palou kid, I think he has something. I could be totally wrong. And another Mark May episode to come back to this show where, oh, Pruitt, you said you thought that he might actually be a bit of a revelation, at least within the team at Coin, and uh, show Santino the fast way around from time to time. I do. I think he might. I really do. Uh, but I also could be totally wrong. So, you know, that's why I try not to make too many predictions. But I wouldn't say this is so much a prediction. Just if you look at his history, this kid has impressed with some teams that weren't necessarily the bestest of the bestest. And that's what he's stepping into. Uh, a coin team that's undergone a pretty heavy year-to-year change on the engineering front, at least. And, yeah. I'm going to be, this is something that I'm genuinely looking forward to because if it is just a case of, oh, well, here's another guy who we didn't know of and didn't do much and then went away pretty soon, I'll be really bummed out. Uh, Let's see, where else should we go? We're going to go to Ruffles 12. This out of the quote stepchildren from the top tier teams from last season, Ryan Hunter Ray, Will Power, even though he won, and Graham Rahal. Who do you see having the strongest season, and who might be moving elsewhere next season? Well, uh, I think the easy, easy answer to that would be Hunter Ray. Uh, Obviously, Graham can always surprise. I would say that I haven't heard much could be wrong, and I need to check in. I'm actually going to make a note here to check in. Um, I don't know of any significant engineering changes on the Ray Hall side uh, year to year to lead me to believe that something drastically different is going to be unveiled for Graham. So I need to just check in and see if that's accurate or not. If there have been uh, some engineering changes, something different than just turning up and hoping it all works out, then I would say in the absence of that, I don't see how Graham has a vastly better year. He had a few too many not great results. Not all of them were his own making, right? Uh, Barber, more or less dead last. Indy was just not great, obviously out, you know, pretty early. Um, Gateway and Portland were both not wonderful. That ended up, you know, knocking him down to 10th in the championship. If you remove those, you you realize that pretty much top 10 everywhere he went. The thing that didn't help, again, overstating the obvious, 
he's been doing this too long for his qualifying performances to be as mediocre as they are. And so having to constantly overtake and make up ground in the races, it's it just consumes too much time to allow him to have great results. So where this plays out is not on the days where he finished third or fourth, of which there were a couple. It's the, you're seventh here, you're ninth there, you're seventh again, you're ninth, you're eighth, you're ninth, you're ninth. That was the story for about half the season. And that just speaks to, man, when you're starting mid-pack, you don't get a chance to really shine. And so if Graham can improve his Saturdays, so that his Sundays are easier, then his season becomes a heck of a lot better. I just don't know if there's been anything structurally to change within the team to facilitate that. And at 31, which is just crazy to think of, Graham is 31 now. I'm not entirely clear how he changes that. Uh, 10, 12, 13, 15 years into an IndyCar career. So that leads me to believe that good old Ryan hunter Ray who had a not awesome year, definitely had that cartoon anvil following him around too much. It still was an off year. It felt like an off year. Uh, If it wasn't misfortune striking him through no fault of his own to him being the bowling ball that knocked out the crowd at Portland to, oh, Lord, Pocono, obviously... Uh, that wasn't a very pleasant thing. If he can just have a clean year, uh, he's going to be top five. That's where he belongs. So power, again, didn't have a bad year. Finished fifth in the standings. You know, won a couple races, uh, had a couple additional podiums, you know, but there was just pretty big swings. If it wasn't uh, a win or podium, it seemed like it was a fairly poor finish for Will. And although he's a a dear friend, that's been the tale more often than not in his championship runs. And so at the age of, you know, like I said, uh, what, he's 38, going to be 39 here in a little over a month. I just don't know if that story dramatically changes. Because that's been the norm. Hunter Ray, clean up the cartoon anvils and a couple of mistakes. And yeah, uh, so I would put RHR uh, in my position there. Good old Ruffles 12 for making the biggest year-to-year leap. Ryan Terpstra. Hey there, Ryan. Says, what are the odds Indy 500 has no women in it this year? Pippa Mann recently posted on social media she hasn't been able to get the sponsors together. Is there any hope for Catherine Legg or Simona De Silvestro? Is that something IndyCar should step in and help funding like they did when they had to help ensure there were 33 cars on the grid? Man, that is a awesome question, Ryan. Do I think we could be female-free? I do, which is garbage but i do uh pippa's story she has a lot of fans she's not necessarily someone who has built a legion of fans within 
the team owner base, though. I mean, we know Dale Coyne is very fond uh, of Pippa. Um, we know that, obviously, she was able to pull off something pretty cool with the uh, and Marshall team uh, last year. We also know that, for what Tim Clawson told me, they probably were good. They weren't so sure they are going to try and do this again. So we also have a case where the Indiana Donor Network uh, chose to put their full support behind Pippa in that uh, Clawson Marshall program, and that was great for them. I know that that also might have actually closed some doors within the paddock for her owing to some questions as to whether that money was actually needed. Uh, the Don't underestimate the ongoing respect that people have for the Wilson family uh, and where the Indiana Donor Network first partnered with Justin's younger brother, Stefan. Um, I can tell you because I listened to the comments and may or may not have agreed with some of them at Indy last year that uh, while the IDN initiative is amazing, trying to raise awareness for donations, actual donations that would help save lives, there are some maybe deeper philosophical questions as to was this done the right way? Was this done respectfully? Was this needed? Um, So not saying, Ryan, that any of those things are, quote, real, meaning people can have conversations and have opinions, but do they really affect anything? I don't know. The fairy tale story of the Kloss and Marshall team making the field, running in the right, again, that's amazing. That's never going to stop being an amazing achievement by this team. If personal money is no longer coming through, if external sponsors are no longer signing on, I cannot think of a scenario where an IndyCar team with a seat makes it available for Pippa to drive based on an invitation with no expectation for money to change hands. So uh, that's if that were to happen, I would be surprised because that's never been the story to my knowledge. Um, that leaves us with Cat or Simona. I know there's been a desire for Cat to be in uh, some Honda-powered cars. For a couple of years since she's been a part of the uh, Meyer Shank Racing Acura IMSA program. Keep in mind, she's no longer part of the Meyer Shank Acura IndyCar, Pro- IndyCar program, IMSA program, and she's now driving for a team making use of Lamborghinis. So that could complicate the internal push on that front. Not altogether, but just. It's a bit harder to go to bat for someone when they're no longer part of your manufacturer family, I would say, and make it go somewhere. Simona, I've heard nothing. Uh, with her deal with Porsche, helping them with Formula E, and just seems a little bit distant. When she and I spoke a couple months ago, you know, she said, sure, I'd love to still be there, uh, but 
you know, it's a, a wish, not anything that has action behind it. Final part to this, Ryan, which is the most intriguing aspect, I would say, is the should IndyCar help? Hmm. Be a rather strange door to open. If it were ever made known to the public, because if IndyCar is, does say, okay, we're going to put three, $400,000 behind a female driver to make sure we have a woman in the Indy 500. It's one thing to do that privately and for it to stay private. That would be their choice, their money. Obviously, if that were to become known, I think that becomes highly problematic and not because of the gender angle, but from the everything angle. Well, awesome. Are there any drivers of Chinese heritage in the race? Are there any African-American drivers in the race? Are there any transgender drivers in the race? Are there... Again, run down the list of all the different types of people who aren't in the race. You know, I'm not, I don't want to be too silly here, but if IndyCar starts handing out money to get Indy 500 drivers, at least in the field to try and qualify, based on anything other than merit and it becomes known, right? This is an amazing driver. They would enrich the show. We want to at least give them a shot to be in the show. I think if that were to become known, run down the list of faiths, right? Are there any Muslim drivers in the show? Are there, again, I'm just... This is where I think it blows up an IndyCar's face. I think there would be plenty of people that would love it and say, fantastic, we need more women. That's not the question. We know that answer, of course. But it would be really interesting to find out if that's something that they wanted to try and do. And if they did, there would probably have to be some quadruple airtight agreements that no one said anything about it happening. Because if you want to talk about raising a stink... Uh, boy, this becomes a lightning rod for, huh, so you're actually demonstrating prejudice. You are helping one type of person, but not others? Uh, That, I would think, could be an argument made, since it seems that today, in the world we live in, people arguing in social justice warriors about every little perceived slight uh, dominate the news cycle. Uh, would also say here, Ryan, that if I wanted to play the guy that says, what's the better thing to help or address? It's why are Pippa, why is Pippa man the most obvious solution for a woman to be in the Indy 500 or Catherine Legg? or Simona Di Silvestro, or, 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 or. Why aren't we complaining that there are too many women trying to get into the race and not enough seats? That would be 
a wonderful problem to have. So I see what we have here as a road to Indy issue, a young women in carting issue. Not saying there aren't enough, saying that some form of grooming and recognizing talent and the young team, the team owners along the way looking for talent who maybe don't just look at girls or women and don't really think of girls or women as real serious athletes as race car drivers to consider. I would say sponsors who are interested in supporting along the way and tend to gravitate towards the young boy. There's some mindset fixing here that needs to happen, I would say. And then when it's time and you're staring at the road to Indy in USF 2000, I realize from Bruna to a few other women who've been there, um, there have been some women but not many that have either demonstrated the talent to warrant extra help or have just been ignored and we've never had a chance to find out if they have the talent to go farther and support to get there. The same that most of the young male talent seem to receive without question. So there's some fundamental issues here, Ryan. So if I would say that if IndyCar wanted to start spending money to do things to really help itself, in the medium and longer term, it might ask, huh, why is this by and large an all-male, all-white sport? Realize it's not all-white. Just saying by and large. Why is this predominantly this way? Why has it always predominantly been this way? And should we try and be an agent of change? The NBA decided to start the WNBA so that women who were playing successfully in Europe and elsewhere in college could actually play professionally in the United States. Would love if women could be on the court with men at the same time in the NBA, but that hasn't been the case. But at least there was a recognition that, hey, there is an absence here that needs, there's something that needs to be here that isn't. We fortunately, have something where it would be abnormal if IndyCar were to start a separate women's series because there's no need because women obviously can drive a motor racing vehicle as well as men, as any man can. So maybe if you have the talent in a particular sector, whether it is gender, ethnicity, religion, dining choices, beer preference, I don't know. Um, When there's a glaring omission of half the world's population in a sport where gender should be absolutely blind, that might be something to address on really a a systemic level or foundational level, Ryan. Uh, I'd love to see that initiative. Let's go to Hitoroki 2 as we actually start to get not too far from the end. Thank you for that. Uh, I don't need to go and refill my coffee mug today. It says, I've been hearing that the money exchange to dollars has been more favorable as of late, mainly when it comes from South American money to U.S. dollars. 
Do you think there will be more South Americans in the series in time? Or do you think the majority of that talent will still go to Europe? That's an interesting one. Uh, I haven't heard the same thing because I haven't been paying attention. So uh, on the dollar exchange rate, so that's my dumb idity being exposed here. I think Formula One is probably going to remain the most intriguing, fascinating, shiny object for young race car drivers in most of the world coming up. So I would not be surprised, dear Hitoroki 2, if young South American drivers maybe think of Formula One first. Don't know how much of a real connection and outreach we've had this is of the million different things Roger Penske's team can do, might do, should do. IndyCar in the cart era, champ car as well, less so in the modern version of the Indy Racing League, though, did have some really strong ties internationally, even if it's international means just looking up to Canada, south to Mexico, Brazil, and so on. There's some really strong ties outside of our good old United States of America, be it with drivers, agents, sponsors, those who just own giant corporations. It's a really strong connection, connected web of people that were helping, talking, developing, bringing talent, really looking to ways to get them here. It seems like it's been a while since those connections have been what they need to be. So I wonder if Roger in his connections can help reestablish some of those things so that when you do have in name the South American Championship or the Australian Championship or the wherever where young talent is coming up and there are sponsors behind them that we can you know, kind of open some of these pathways again to where coming to America, racing an IndyCar, it becomes a goal, a destination, uh, more something where not just Formula One is viewed as the one and only place to try and go. It wasn't always that way. We were actually almost overwhelmed with the amount of talent wanting to come here, plus our own domestic talent coming up. Um, yeah, it's an industry. It's an industry that was once roaring and doesn't feel like it's that way. So I'm curious if this is something that can indeed be fixed, started back up again, or if I'm just failing to recognize that industry's dead and it ain't coming back. Uh, Robert Northway says, From last week's show, you put the idea out there that IndyCar could have motorbike racing on the bill. Well, it has happened in the past, and they're planning on having it again. In your favorite Down Under series, Aussie V8s had the Aussie Superbike Championship and also drag racing on the same weekend at Sydney Motorsports Park. So I can't see why IndyCar couldn't do the same. Also, bring back Sonoma. We have NHRA and MA on the same bill. Man, that sounds like fun, doesn't it? Uh, Also talking about Aussie V8s, they're having... Uh, three races, both on street tracks and permanent facilities that will be floodlit and run at night. 
what are your thoughts on running a night race on a road or street track in IndyCar? That would be freaking, as I use a very old hip-hop term, that'd be dope. So this idea that I have, and I need to write it down again because I forgot about it, to tell a story about the old Marlboro Challenge uh, thing that took place for about five or six years in the late 80s and early 90s, which was IndyCar's all-star race. They took the top 10 drivers based on wins, championship finishing position, and Indy 500 winner and all that, and just had separate race. Uh, for them, Marlboro paid them a buttload of money, and it was just fun. It was a throwaway, disposable thing. Maybe that, wouldn't that be a blast? Like Saturday night under the lights at Long Beach? I mean, that'd be, it's already a party weekend. Uh, we got the Sunday race, race. Probably want to use backup cars with, uh, with, you know, well done backup cars, obviously, but use the, the spare cars, not the actual ones that qualified for the race. I know that they do a concert at Long Beach, more or less facing the street with some sort of somewhat recognizable band every year. I know that the Formula Drift-ish, Formula D guys, I think it's them. I'm not sure if it's another drift organization. They do stuff Saturday evening as well on the streets. I don't know, though. I like the idea of a, we're going to rock out, do our... IMSA race, which ends at, you know, whatever, 5-ish, 5.30 p.m. Saturday. And then, you know, celebrate there. Maybe you chuck the drift cars out for an hour or something. Get the uh, the sun coming down. And maybe we do a sunset start IndyCar all-star race. And I know it's like the fourth or fifth race of the year, so it's a little hard to say, like, oh, you know, we all-star more or less based on what happened the year before because there wouldn't be enough races to really pick from for this year. But uh, maybe that's the idea, Robert. We do this kind of, I don't know what, NTT challenge, name the sponsor, who knows, spam challenge, some sort of all-star race under the lights. It's, I think, one pit stop, right? Got just It's the, the length of two stints start the race full tanks got to come in and do one mandatory pit stop refill and it's however long that lasts so i don't know what 50 minutes an hour something like that but it is basically just all for the money all for the money and i'm not saying you can't have a hard crash on a street course you certainly can you would really hope that folks would not be turfing one another too hard, but I like that idea. Um, I don't know. What are some of the other, if we were going to do a IndyCar race, a rotor street course at night, what do you think? Where should we do that to make it really cool and amazing? I realize that some of the tracks that go to are kind of big and we might just lose the cars for large portions of the lap in the dark. And since they don't have headlights, uh, that might be a bit problematic too, but give me your idea. Um, let's go. Let's go back to Ryan Terpstra. Uh, MP, you didn't get to, uh, spend a ton of time down there when you're in Australia. It says now that you've done it, how would you describe, 
All right, I don't fully understand the question here. MP didn't get to spend a ton of time with you when you were in Australia. Now that you've done it, how would you describe racing at Bathurst to someone who doesn't know anything about the mountain? Um, I'm going to leave this in because I don't edit stuff out on my unpolished turd uh, production quality for my listener Q&A. Ryan, I think we're missing a couple words here because uh, I don't fully get the question, but I wanted to read it because I guess you sent it in and Tim included it in the Q&A. So uh, if this was kind of meant for Hinch, I think, I'm not sure. How would I describe racing down under at Bathurst? Having been there once, I would say that if you are a racing fan, just love going to big, important, uh, passion-filled motor racing events, then you need to book a flight and attend the Bathurst 1000. It is their Indy 500 in terms of popularity and turnout. It's just, it takes over uh, the region. There's, I can't even tell you how many fans who are there. What I love about Bathurst, again, I've only been there once, followed it for a really long time. Um, What I love about it is it had the feel of the Indy 500 snake pit, but kind of everywhere. So (laughs) drunk madness, just passion for everything, just huge. And then the racing is amazing as well. And it lasts a couple hours, three, four hours long. It takes a good while. It's one of the most daunting circuits on the planet. Uh, you got to be in a little bit of okay shape because there's some hiking involved. And yes, even my fat butt was able to uh, hike around there. It's just beautiful. And I've always loved Aussies and Kiwis. If you work in motor racing, at least in the open wheeler sports car stuff I've done throughout my life, guaranteed you're going to have worked with Kiwis and Aussies. They're good people. They are hearty people. They will rip you to shreds, uh, tear you apart, and all with a smile. Just a lot of fun. So imagine all those people in a snake pit mindset. Again, I don't know what the number is, 100,000, 200,000, whatever. Just insane amounts of people. Big, glorious track. Really cool cars. Long race as well. Festival and party type atmosphere. It's it's amazing. You know, everyone everyone says Indy 500, 24 hours of Le Mans, Monaco Grand Prix, Daytona 500. All those are true. Get to Nürburgring. Get to a couple other places too. Uh, Bathurst 1000 should absolutely be instantly mentioned on that list because it's just that amazing all right we're uh, we're down to the last three and thank you again for not bombarding me with too many this week uh i don't know if i could have gotten them done um we're gonna go to christian denevsky hey christian says what camera lenses do you recommend to someone who is trying to get into or improve in their very mediocre racetrack photography editing suites as well well, Christian, uh, you have more than two options now. The, this was pretty much a Pepsi versus Coke thing forever um, with Nikon and Canon. I've always been a Canon guy. I have good friends who shoot nothing but Nikon. I have friends who shot Nikon, switched over to Canon, and vice versa. We now have a bunch of shutterless cameras that are getting used by folks. Uh, I think Sony is a manufacturer, one of them. 
Uh, I think there's some others as well. You're talking about lenses? Really, really would say the better glass you can buy, obvious statement alert, the better. So I, over many, many years, have invested a ridiculous amount into my photography equipment under the realization that the better the glass, the better the quality images, but that also pertains to your camera body. So not knowing what you use here, Christian, uh, not knowing what your goals are. I mean, I can just give you a generic use better lenses, but again, if you're trying to get into improve your racetrack photography, need a little bit more help on this. So don't be afraid to send this question back in or reach out directly because things like what do you own now? <laughs> what don't you own? What are your, what races are you going to go to? Are you going to places where you are at minimum a hundred feet away from the cars, or are you going to be super up close? You know, do you need a? Do you really need a four hundred millimeter, five hundred millimeter lens for wherever you are and wherever you might go, or will a two hundred millimeter? Work? Again, I don't know. So just a little bit of situational info would help. Uh, also knowing what camera body you have um, was communicating with uh, someone who reached out on the exact same topic here uh, this past week and you know really got down to a place where for his budget spending that money on a better camera body was going to give him better results than actually throwing tons of money into this glass and that glass for where he's at right now so shoot me a note christian either send in a follow-up question or send me a good old direct message and I will try and give you more than generalisms. And our penultimate question, I love that word, makes me sound like me smart, goes to our pal Jameen Tuttle. Marshall, have you heard how car, 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 no excuses, none, none. Marshall, have you heard how car counts are looking for the road to Indy? Specifically, Indy Lights. It looks like 11 right now. Love to see a couple more. I'm with you, Jameen. I wish that there were more. We all wish there were more. And I believe you said it's pronounced Jamin, not Jameen. So, I'm just... I'm using your question specifically to F up as many ways as possible. I haven't heard anything, Jamin, that leads me to believe there's going to be a radically different car count for lights. I think that's going to remain this way until the budgets come down somewhere in the 25 to 30% range. Repeating something I've said many times, it's not as if the budgets are insane by any means. They're just more than, as we continue to see, too many people can afford. So, yeah, no one's doing anything bad. No one's raking in gross profits at the, uh, at the 
point of destabilizing the series. There's nobody who's just getting crazy rich off this and not caring and risking things getting worse. Therefore, that's why car counts are low. It's not the case at all. It's just too expensive for what the market will bear to have 15 to 20 cars. That's just reality. It's not the first time it's happened in lights or in motor racing in general. Uh, If you look at IMSA right now, it has a couple of classes as well in its top tier WeatherTech championship where there just aren't as many people who can afford to pay what it costs to do the championship. If they address this, their numbers will increase. If they don't, it won't. Uh, There's no magic formula here. Simply a case of looking at what folks are able to spend and willing to spend and making adjustments to your series to suit that. Because just doing the same thing and not adapting and accepting low numbers year after year in whatever series, whatever class, uh, I haven't heard many tales of those situations getting better without adapting. going to close here with Bobby Rooney. Wanted to save your question for last because I loved it. Loved it. Marshall, what percentage of Bobby Unser's stories he tells on your podcast or other similar outlets these days are an accurate representation of actual events? (laughs) Bobby says, my buddy and I have a bet with an over and under set at 3%. Also, what's your favorite Uncle Bobby tale that he's ever told you? This is just a source of immense joy, Bobby. Mr. Unser, our finest uncle, he has been a staple in everyone's lives for a really long time. I met him for the first time, I don't know, uh, eight, nine, however, ten years, whatever, however many years ago. And it's all 100% because of Miller, Robin Miller. And so Uncle Bobby would come up to the media center at Indy during the month of May, pretty much right after he got there, and make a beeline for Miller. I'd say Miller and I, because me sitting next to Robin, but for Miller, not for me. And would just spend hours regaling us with stories that you just hope that children are nowhere nearby. And women, I would say, as well, because a lot of the things being said were crass and unkind. I mean, men as well. Uh, you name it. Uh, if they're, every segment of life receives the old flamethrower from Uncle Bobby, And it just, I love it because it reminds me of growing up with my dad and his friends being around. And I can tell you for sure with them, the percentage of truthiness was pretty low more often than not. But it didn't matter because it was a spectacle. It was the gathering of people to make each other laugh, make each other spit their beer out because they couldn't keep from chuckling so hard um just a ceremony 
of life and silliness and concocted tales. So coming back to Uncle Bobby, this is one of the things that I just came to really appreciate and that in the early 2010s, just year after year, spending that time with Uncle Bobby, again, hours just listening uh, and trying to get work done and tears running down our faces and everyone coming around to see him and wanting to listen in. I mean, it just became a huddle. And that Bobby was so special, all because of Robin. And so one of the fortunate things is that through this and going out and, you know, going to dinners and all this kind of stuff, you know, Uncle Bobby just became a friend, which is amazing. Uh, And so he and I have had a pretty fun relationship since we became friends. The amount of stories that he tells on my podcast that are true, I would say decent amount for what you probably heard on our friends at dinner with racers. And I'm glad that they've got to meet Bobby and, and introduce him to their audience who probably would have never known him uh, as well. That's been great. Uh, Cause he has been, again, very famous race car driver. Don't get me wrong, but the legend of uncle Bobby, the being around uncle Bobby, the stories and tales, the things that were really, kind of, you know, private standing room only type things, which uh, has been a tradition forever with Robin and that he welcomed me into, again, whatever, decade ago or so. That's just amazing and just a high point in my life, being in that club and the fact that Uncle Bobby, since uh, has shared this more, either my podcasts or Ryan and Sean and their podcasts, that to me is the real treasure here, Bobby, that what was once a at the dinner table type thing at the whatever restaurant in the corner away from everybody else type thing that folks have been invited to that table. Doesn't mean, though, Bobby, that half of what Uncle Bobby says would qualify as true or accurate. Um <laughs> And that's why, honestly, I don't know if it matters. Miller talking about Uncle Bobby's, I'm using air quotes here, autobiography. I believe he, he air quote, co-wrote with Joe Scalzo. Miller refers to that, and I just steal the line as well whenever I'm mentioning it refers to Uncle Bobby's autobiography as one of the greatest works of fiction man has ever known. Um, But that's Uncle Bobby, right? Whether these things actually happened in front of corroborating witnesses on the planet Earth or not, he believes them, or he wants you to believe them, And if you say it enough, it'll become the truth. So, (laughs) you know, pick and choose, you know, uh, where you fall on that. If you cut on cable news and you go to CNN, man, uh, they're going to keep repeating the same old stupid nonsense over and over again. To the point to where 
over time, it's probably just going to sink in that whatever that agenda is, it's going to be, you're going to believe it. You do the same thing. You go to Fox News again, this it's the same kind of thing. Agenda repetition. Hopefully it just becomes digested at some point as real, you know, Uncle Bobby predates Fox News and CNN and whatever agenda-based disinformation information campaigns. Um, And maybe they're using the Uncle Bobby blueprint of if you say it enough, maybe folks just won't bother to fact check or ask. Mention here, too, on uh, on the tales at least for the many that Uncle Bobby has spun on my podcast... Uh, (laughs) I will admit to having edited out a couple of things, not a lot, but a couple of things where I just knew that they were bullshit. Just, you know, gotta be honest here, complete bullshit and spoken about, you know, this would have been after, uh, my hero and friend Dan Gurney died where I just knew that the words being spoken were not accurate. They might have been from Uncle Bobby's viewpoint, but it's one thing if a person is alive to be able to refute such things. When they aren't, uh, to me, that you start to get into a question of legacy. And do you really want to put out known falsehoods? I didn't. And again, we're not talking anything super serious. But I'd be lying if I told you I hadn't gotten a couple of notes or comments from members of the I'll just say members of the Gurney family for some previous stuff where they're like hey listen to the podcast and yeah it sure was funny uh, and Uncle Bobby was really engaging and we sure do love him but <laughs> this was maybe not in the realm of accuracy uh, or this here uh, if that's how he chooses to remember it okay but I was there when that thing happened that he said, and uh, that is not the way it went down. So, you know, that's maybe the trying to be a little bit of a responsible adult Bobby. Uh, I don't want to, you don't want to give someone a complete green light on everything. If you know that there's reason to believe that some of it might shape recollections of history inaccurately. And so, in a case or two where I've known something that was said was not exactly truthy. Uh, I said, you know, I don't really want to be the guy putting that out there. So, but other than that, as for a percentage, I can't tell you, but man, I haven't spoken with uncle Bobby in a couple months. I need to. Um, but I, yeah, those conversations are loved as for favorite story. Uh, maybe going to have to have him tell it again and capture it. And if he's told it somewhere else on a podcast and I haven't heard it, then that's on me. We were at dinner a couple Indy 500s ago. I don't know, 2016, 17, somewhere in there. Uh, Miller puts to puts at least one per Indy 500 together where it's kind of the, the small Miller club of, of friends and miscreants. So it was myself, Miller, the amazing Bones Borsier, uh, Steve Shunk, of course, 
Parnelli Jones, Uncle Bobby, and uh, I think a friend of Parnelli's that we didn't really know, and the incredibly awesome Tim Coffeen. And I might I don't know if I'm forgetting anybody else, but there might have been one or two other people who I'm forgetting. But obviously Uncle Bobby, getting Uncle Bobby and Parnelli together was just that right there. <laughs> uh you know, these are things where I get full transparency. What I do for a living, both the things that I get paid for by clients or with this podcast that I do, which is my own, you know, I'm a guy who really if you boil things down either gathers stories and presents them to you or tells stories directly to you from my head one way or another it's this thing happened at a motor motor racing circuit this is something from back in the day this person said this or i say that it's all story generation capturing and generation and it's hard sometimes Bobby to (laughs) be out at a dinner like this and to realize that, you know, this would make the most amazing podcast or the most amazing video. And everything in my body is like, dude, just like sneak your phone out and, you know, put it under a napkin and record it and whatever. And, you know, that that's the inner guy who that's all he does for a living, uh, Thing kind of peeking out a little bit but i also have to realize that you know this is just friends at dinner not everything is meant to be recorded but certainly we can retell these tales so the one that just uh, it, it is so hilarious and i can't do it justice here but it came down to i think it was jim mackelreath possibly indie famous indycar driver who hated cats and there was some, there was the Bobby Unser School of Flight or something along those lines. Uh, Unser, who never had a pilot's license, uh, still taught a lot of his race car driver friends how to fly, and they went on and got their own private planes and flew themselves around. So wherever this was, the little hangar, I guess there was some sort of, of you know, wild cat hanging around in the hangar. They're about to go out in this little small single engine, little kind of Cessna two, three, four person type plane. And I think, it, again, I think it was McElreath. I could be wrong. Uh, decided, hey, I'm going to grab that cat. Ha, ha, ha. And we're going to go up and I'm going to throw that thing out. Now, that's pretty sick and twisted, obviously, but I can't. It's not my story. So you all know I'm a cat lover, too. So the the ending of the story is my favorite. So guy grabs the Macarith grabs the cat provided it is Macarith. I don't know what, if he grabs, throws a blanket around it or what, but they go up however, you know, thousand feet or whatever. And it's time to open the door and throw the cat out the door. Well, the cat being a cat, having claws, having those proverbial nine lives decided Pardon my French. Fuck you. And so the story, instead of it being, I'm going to do this thing that I think is going to make my buddies chuckle by grabbing this stupid cat and throwing it out the 
plane and obviously it plummeting to its death and them, I guess, finding humor in that. Uh, the cat said, no, uh, what I'm going to do is live. And what I'm going to do is extend my claws and dig them into McElreath's head. And I think uncle Bobby's head as well talked about just blood, like having to land immediately because they've just been, uh, mauled by not a big cat, but a very tiny cat, uh, who decided that, you know what? Today ain't the day, buddy. And, uh, instead went completely feral and rogue on them and scratched and cut the living shit out of them. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, kind of a precursor to the movie Snakes on a Plane, right? Where uh, the only difference is they kind of brought this attacking animal uh, onto the plane, thinking it'd be funny to try and kill it from high in the sky. And the cat said, yeah, you know what? Actually, I got different plans. And let's see if you can fly a plane with me and all four paws stuck into the side of your head and clawing and scratching and ripping you guys up. So that might be my favorite Uncle Bobby tale, probably because of how it ends. But I can also just picture this mayhem of a plane that at least on takeoff and, you know, reaching whatever elevation was somewhat stable. And then all of a sudden looking like uh, it is trying to fall out of the sky and weaving left and right and up and down and barrel rolls and you name it as they're being attacked by a cat who refuses to be thrown out of it. Um, that, Bobby, is my favorite. And it was corroborated by Parnelli that that actually happened. So I think this is at somewhere in that 3% range of it, uh, that over-under. I think I think we're good on this one. But there are indeed more. There, there's The thing about an Uncle Bobby conversation, to close here, is you would actually need to record them to digest and process and listen back to all the tales that are told. Because there's, more often than not, you sit, catch up with a friend, 5, 10, 20 minutes, whatever it is, 30 minutes, and you cover a lot of base, bases, just one or two standout items. Uncle Bobby, there's no BS. There's no filler. It's pretty much all standout items. And after a while, it gets a little bit hard to hold the 10 or 15 that emerge from the conversation. So that's a blessing. True or not, those are blessings. So, Bobby, thank you for your question about Uncle Bobby. Thank you to everyone for sending in your questions this week. I realize that a call for new questions is going to go out here almost right away. So we will be back with another listener Q&A episode here of the Week in IndyCar on the Marshall Pro Podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires the Justice Brothers TorontoMotorsports.com and Bell Racing Helmets USA <laughs> <laughs>